Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, Albuterol Budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glenn Eberly is somebody that may not be on your radar. You may not even know the name Glenn Eberly. You probably have heard of Eberly stock an outdoor apparel brand for hunters, outdoorsmen, and our military community. They create very functional apparel now, but more specifically, they got known for their backpacks. And the backpack was actually designed, thought out, and tested by Glenn himself back in the day because he got frustrated because he came from an Olympic discipline, a biathlon discipline, background he wanted to be able to efficiently carry his gun in the backcountry when he went hunting essentially the genesis of eberly stock but glenn eberly is a very intricate done so much kind of guy that i just wanted to have a conversation with him about who he is what he's done we sat on a porch on his little ranch that's a little in holding in the frank church wilderness looking out over an incredible mountain meadow and just had a great conversation. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is... <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Absolutely drink at the same time, <laughs> so you watch. Oh, yeah. Just got to figure it out properly. Oh, there we go. All right, nice. Easy, easy. Okay, Mr. Robbie, what do you want to talk about? Um, 
Lots of things, man. Lots of things. You're the chatty one, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It always comes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this is an idyllic setting. I was, Casey was, you know, looking around. Did your dad build th- this? No. Who built this? No. Uh, a guy from Elk City built this house uh, in the late 70s uh, from, okay. from an old barn. The logs are old because it was an old barn that was on site uh, that, that they decided they'd rather have a nice house than an yeah. old barn. So they repurposed. What yeah. about the homestead up there? That is, as far as I know, you know, original early 1900s or like turn of the century. Uh, Cook Ranch was founded in 1907. 19- yeah. Mm-hmm. She's 120 years if you do the math. Uh, no, I didn't do the math right. <laughs> it's close enough. <laughs> 115, yeah, like, 115. Math is my thing anyway. It's, yeah. all, it's all good. Yeah. How long has it been in your family? Uh, Dad was a cattle rancher as I grew up and, and sold the active ranches in the mid-thousands and bought this place in 2006. And you worked the cattle ranches? Yeah. Yeah, as a kid. Yeah. Stacking hay, baling hay. Yeah. How yeah. many head of cows did you have? Uh, it varied. He, he had... Uh, four different ranches in all and at one time and another not necessarily all at the same time but um, you know a couple of them were cow-calf operations where we had anywhere from 100 cows and you know a handful of bulls to service them and each year you'd have a crop of that many calves and uh, and then the biggest one later on was more like 300 head and 3,000 acres and a lot of hay, hay ground, ground and stuff on that one. So you were mustering so. cows yourself, or you brought oh, people yeah. in? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My dad was the classic dude. He uh, didn't give a lot of instruction. He'd just say, uh, you know, go up that hill and get those cows, or go up to that fourth gate and get that blah blah blah. And then you go, I don't know where the fourth gate gate is, and you just expect you to figure it out. So yeah, he yeah. Had off and yeah, did a lot of up and down the mountains and on foot. The the first ranch we bought here was called the Wisdom Ranch in the Salmon River Valley and in, in, in Salmon River Canyons, and um, and that was a vertical place. I mean, it was seven hundred and something acres of deeded, but if you laid it out flat, it'd be probably a couple thousand because it was just straight up and down these mountains. And uh, and the cows were like mountain goats on those things. You know, they went all over them, and you'd go up there to get them and bring them down. And we were just yeah. in New Zealand, and they were. They they would muster sheep with helicopters. Yeah, right. Out of the high country. Yeah, that's a good idea. I like that idea a lot better than going up on foot. <laughs> so you just went tough. on foot, no horses. Yeah, you know we had horses, but we rarely used them for the cow. We in the where that ranch was was in the um, one of the uh, forks off the Salmon River side canyon, and uh, and it backed up to the rim north of the Seven Devils above Hell's Canyon. So. Our summer range that we uh, leased from the Forest Service was uh, all along the rim of Hell's Canyon, and mm-hmm. so we take the cattle up in the in the spring with horses and turn them loose on the forest, and then once in a while ride up to find them and move them to a different place with different water, or different grass, or whatever. When lost did you do that? And all of this was a long, long time ago. Really, I I uh, did my best to not do it anymore when, once I went off to college. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a kid, a teenager, you know, did all that stuff and. Uh, and really, at the time, you know, you know, as I said, you know, I love my father, but uh, and I'm really grateful for the things he brought to my life. I mean, you know, it's one of those weird things where I think back about the journey I've been on in life, and and it all started with him. You know, he taught me how to cross country ski when I was well. He wouldn't let me do it until I was five. He taught me to alpine ski when I was two, and then and then uh, cross country or Nordic skiing when I was five, and and uh, and he kind of made it that uh, interestingly, he rarely tried to make things fun. 
but that sport, which wasn't particularly fun for a kid, um, he, he put this kind of interesting, you can't do it until you're big enough, uh, you know, oh. uh, uh, kind of appeal mm. uh, in, into it. And, and so I always wanted to kind of prove myself. And he was a big sport. Nordic skier? Yeah, he, yeah, he was, he, he grew up in the East and, and had been a Nordic skier when he was young. And, uh, when, and really, if you think about the 60s and 70s, there weren't a lot of Americans that did that sport, uh, depends some in the Midwest and upper Midwest and just spotty here and there, but it was, there weren't many of us. Uh, <laughs> I was, in fact, I, we grew up in Colorado it wasn't until I was 12 years old, lived in a little town in Colorado and ski raced there. And, uh, I was always either first or second in the Nordic races because there were only two of us in our age group. Oh, really? It. Yeah, it was pretty funny. It was like, oh, I got a medal. Of course I got a medal. It was either first or second. <laughs> I remember but, uh, yeah. a very similar scenario. I was, I was a swimmer in school and my favorite stroke was butterfly. And uh, even uh, probably even worse than your scenario, when it was like a under tens or under twelves, and it came to the butterfly race, and there were two competitors in the butterfly race. It was me and a girl. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, that is that's brutal. And I came second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just not good. <laughs> Crush a man's young man's ego. Gosh. So <laughs> talk to me. A l- so, well, Glenn Eberly, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you being us. Thank you for the hospitality. Whilst we. Yeah. Did this embedded Blood Origins episode? Yeah. Yeah, so uh well, welcome to the ranch. It's a it's a special out of the way place that, 100%. Uh, that we love coming to and it's a, a wonderful place to have company. You know, it's a made better by people and conversation and uh and then uh yeah, it's wonderful. Wonderful little slice of paradise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when I'm here, I c- I come here as often as I can and often by myself and uh just a strangely calm, peaceful place that makes you forget about the world outside. That's that, with sure. a lo- that comes with a laundry list of to-dos. Yeah, but it's fun. It's just man yeah, stuff. Exactly. I mean, I've got a sawmill at the top of the hill behind the barn, and you go drop a tree and make f- lumber and build stuff. And, you know, it's just a blast, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, <laughs> last spring I was in here, um, I bought the beaver with amphibious floats and i was like well i don't know i'll see if it works at the ranch you know and I've, the, I've heard do the floats have wheels underneath yeah oh yeah. okay so okay. it's not a it, you have two types of floats for float planes either straight floats or amphibious floats and amphibs okay. you know have drop down landing gear that'll come out the bottom oh of the okay, okay okay and so it's like you, you know putting the wheels down on a retractable gear airplane so i landed that thing out here in june last year and it was a little wet i noticed when i land you know the fields were wet and the, this place floods in the spring so it's kind of crazy the water but then it rained pretty hard while I was here, and it's the spring runoff was going. So a few days later, I decided to leave, and I, you know, walked out to the plane. I didn't think much about it. I started it up and went down to the end of the, the end of the uh, runway and turned around and, you know, started the engine up and roared down towards the other end. And about 200 yards into the takeoff roll, I hit this pool of standing water that was in the tall, you know, probably eight inches of grass. Well, it's probably eight inches of water. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know what that feels like when you hit it in a car. Oh, yeah, yeah. You hit it with an airplane, it's like, <laughs> and water sprays up over the woods. So I'm like, well, I probably better not try to take off. <laughs> so, you know, just stopped. And I, then, then I went out and looked at the condition of the, of the runway. And I was like, yeah, hey, I probably should look at the condition of the runway before I tried to take off, right? So, um, you know, because it was, the creek was flooding the runway from the upper end. So I came back over to the barn and got the backhoe out and, you know, was d- digging ditches with it and, and You couldn't water. slide? You wouldn't be able to slide the floats? No, the, well, the wheels, it's a wheel plane when you're, when you're on, uh, uh, like you could theoretically slide the floats with the wheels up and try to f- mush through all that stuff, but it'd probably be a pretty long takeoff <laughs> roll. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we only have 2,000 feet of runway here. So right. then it was better to dry out the runway. So anyway, but the point is just cool to be in a place where you have the resources and you'll get the backhoe out and dig ditches and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and be creative. And, and so that's one of the things I love about the place is, yeah, there's a ton to, to do. Always, you know, things falling apart all over the place and things to fix. But at the same time, each each project of restoration and contribution to the ranch is kind of a joy. Yeah. And for me, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I still think about this as my dad's ranch, my my parents' ranch. There was both of theirs, of course. And they uh, used this as a retreat uh, and came out here pretty often together and uh, had their his and hers things to do here. But, sure, of course. Yeah. But it's pretty cool just to they have a cool story in that they fought like cats and dogs through much of their marriage and literally like cats and dogs. I mean, they were just two different people that somehow managed to put it together and mm-hmm. stay married for 60 years. But, um, uh, uh, when they spent time out here, they were at peace with each other. And my mom wrote some beautiful things about my dad that when I read after, after my mom died, I found her journal and I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe she wrote that about him mm-hmm. and wrote it here. And it's neat to know that, that they really appreciated each other here and almost and came that, back together. Yeah. yeah. Super special story for that, for that. And, and so then, you know, later my mom died first and then a year later my dad died, but he died in a house fire. The house I grew up in burned down on him. <laughs> and, uh, Jeez, how old was he? He was 86, I think. Okay. And, uh, but everybody goes, that's tragedy. And I go, yeah, you know, I guess. But the, he wasn't, he was getting old and he was at the end of the road and he really missed my mom. And, and, uh, and I just picture him, uh, you know, he's an old Marine, stubborn as heck. You can mm-hmm. never tell Don Everly what to do. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> I just know he was in the house and where, where we found him, he was around the corner from where the fire started. And I know that he was going to the kitchen to try to get a pot of water to try to throw it on the fire to try to put it out, probably breathe some smoke and probably died peacefully. And therefore, why say it was worse than any other way? Sure, you know? sure. And, and uh, anyway, but the point is that the house I grew up in burned and much of the stuff in it, you know, did of course as well. And so, um, afterwards, you know, all the trauma of all that and dealing with that and getting the house torn down and the whole thing, you put it all away, put it to bed. Then I come out here and I find little things from my childhood, you know, whether it's, uh, the salt and pepper shakers on the table or yeah, just, little, you know, little pictures stuff, here right? and there yeah. that, that you go, Oh, you know, mom brought that out here. And, uh, and then a ton of big stuff like the tractors in the barn or from uh, the, the Wisdom Ranch that I first drove in 1975 when I was 12 years old. And so having things like that here, too, is just it just puts a smile on my face. And then the other kind of odd compliment to that all is, you know, my dad <laughs> had a lot of talents. He was an amazing man. But he wasn't particularly careful about craftsmanship. And so he was like, he was Mr. Bailing Twine and cobble it together and make it work. And, you know, there's all kinds of things I find here that I know he did that, <laughs> that I, that I you know, repair and restore and sure. fix. But occasionally, I, you know, I, uh, uh, I feel like I'm finishing a project that he started. And there have been a bunch of those that, I, that have been fun for me. Did your Just, father come up here all the way to the end? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the that the summer before he died and in the, into the winter before he died, uh, so he'd have been eighty five or eighty six then, eighty six, I guess. Uh, he uh, he'd come out here and and uh, well, first of all, backing up, my mom had dementia, had had Alzheimer's, and so he was always trying to get her out here. And I'm like, Dad, you know, it's just not, you know. Mm-hmm. So one time 
we brought her out here and you know he and he thought it was the greatest thing ever and my mom didn't really unfortunately know the difference and she was an amazing woman incredibly acute brain and 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 you know very articulate and aware of the world of history and all kinds of cool things she was a cool woman but you know when a person's gone down that road at some point they're not the same and so she was at that point the last time we brought her here which was kind of a bummer but dad made made dad's spirit feel good about it and he felt like she he was doing her a service that was genuine and good and uh and then the year after she died, he'd come out here occasionally with me, but sometimes by himself. And man, it's a five-hour drive from a call to the trailhead, and he'd ride his bicycle in here, you know, and, and with his two wild dogs, and and uh, and he, he didn't. He wasn't in the best of health. He was, you know, he had some heart medicine he had to take and other things. And and he'd tell me, okay, I'm going to the ranch for a few days, you know, and and I've got a week's worth of medicine, so I have to be back by Tuesday. Or, mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, okay, if I, if, if I don't hear from you by Friday, I'm going to come get you, uh, you know, and, and make sure you're okay. But but you ha- he had a sat phone. I'm like, just call me on the sat phone. Let me know, okay. And, of no, course, no. Friday, you know, Tuesday would come and go and no call. And I'd try calling the sat phone, no answer. And uh, so four times that last summer I came out here and either flew in or or did the road trip in and hiked in to, you know, expecting to find him dead yeah <laughs> and it was it was inter- interesting because i knew he was at at that point in life where he was going to go and and i wanted to be the guy that found him sure and, I, and, and so i just was like well you know uh it, this could have found the, him this is the time peacefully sleeping on the yeah. rocking chair or something <laughs> yeah, well, like each, that each time well, yeah yeah but i expected him to be dead i hate to, hate to say it. it was just it was just the, that strange thing of like knowing and then and then feeling like he came out here almost to die you know mm-hmm. so uh the, the, each time i found him you know looking at me like why are you here i'm fine <laughs> but good to see you <laughs> yeah. like, and i'd be like you son of a bitch <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah anyway kind of funny stuff but. no it's an amazing ranch it's an amazing ranch and you've yeah. um you know eberly stock being the your company yep and I, I i don't think a lot of people have the privy of what we've just been through in the last couple of days with you hmm. like now I know why it's called Eberly Stock. Yeah. Because yeah. let's just rewind a little bit. You, we, we've glossed over it a little bit, but you were in cross-country skiing. Yep. And you just did you just keep progressing on that? You just really enjoyed it and just kept competing here nationally, yes. sort of regionally and then nationally? Yes. Um, so I really grew up with skiing. My parents were both obsessed by it, and and, and so the family became obsessed by it too, and the, you know, I had two siblings so there were five all in all and when we all you know spent every weekend on the mountain okay and, and then we moved to mccall idaho when i was 12 years old 1975 and that there was a really neat uh man who became my mentor here and a ski coach uh, you know kind of surpassed my father as a ski coach for me and um and we did all you know four-way sports we called it so Alpine racing, a couple different types of that, and ski jumping and, and cross country skiing was was four weight competition. Okay, when you're and as kids we did that, and and so when I was a kid I was kind of toothpick shaped and, and you know and, and and not great at alpine skiing. I didn't have the coordination, the musculature for it mm-hmm. yet, and 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 but for Nordic racing I had endurance, and I've been doing it since I was five, and I yeah. was pretty good at it. And then Mac Miller made me better. He he taught me. Um, really cool ways to move on the snow where where i you know he taught me efficiency in mm. the and the nice thing about that is it's applied to much of my life it's you know i just i, I i've sort of developed this natural desire to 
make the least number of movements to get something done you know so it's, it's sort of this this kind of jo- joyful flow where you you know where where things happen and flow and 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 on skis uh he you know taught me how to flow over the snow and how to and how to put apply minimal energy for maximum motion which again later became really important because i was probably never well, two things i probably i had a lot of talent uh, i told you last night that uh, you know one of the greatest compliments i ever got was from from a, when i overheard a Nor- guy on the norwegian national team <laughs> say you you watch that glenn eberly he skis like a norwegian i was like that that's that's a, what a cool compliment what what distances uh, are we talking glenn 20k uh, yeah, yeah, 25k well, so in biathlon, when later when I was on the on the national team, um, the the relay races were seven and a half k, okay. the shortest one, and then four four men at seven and a half k's each, and then the um, individual the individual races were fit, were ten and twenty k's. Okay, yeah. So anyway, uh, they. Uh, so how did you go from the four sports to? Yeah, so as I was, so as a teenager, um, Mac taught me how to ski race, how to really move on the snow and be efficient, and I trained, you know, to a considerable extent I, I worked pretty hard um and uh when i was i think 17 i got named to the national junior biathlon team because i had an affinity for that there was a guy that was in my hometown like named lyle nelson who'd been on the 76 and 80 olympic teams and he was sort of my childhood hero so around the late 70s and through the early 80s when i was still in high school um i'd started you know, learning how to shoot, and uh, plus you were hunting. Well, I started oh, hunting no. when I was fourteen. Oh, yeah, okay, so okay. they sort of actually came alongside each other, and uh, I can't remember if guys were shoot, teaching me how to shoot twenty twos before I my dad handed me his thirty forty crag and taught me how to shoot that yeah, <laughs> for yeah. hunting. Uh, the first time I hunted was fourteen years old. Anyway, um, yeah, but I grew up with guns after from that fourteen-ish time onward, and uh, and so. Uh, I was a cross-country ski racer, but each year at the national championships, the junior nationals for cross-country skiing, the U.S. team would come and do a demo race and, and have, you know, the kids try the sport, and they were looking for talent. Yeah, sure. And so they saw, spotted me and invited me to a training camp at the Olympic Training Center that was then in Squaw Valley, California, and after which they named me to the national team. And I was like pretty jacked i mean i was like i'm Heck a u.s yes. biathlon team man of course <laughs> yeah it was pretty cool and then uh i had one year of that as a senior in high school uh my first year traveling with the team was to the uh, world championships in finland and uh man that that's a cool place to go for a biathlon race because it's the Finns are really into it they have sure, these big stadiums it's yeah. like a football stadium mm-hmm. that you ski of, into right yeah, and you ski out of rifle range in the middle of it yeah 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 but I was so intimidated by it. You know, you you got this big crowd of ro- roaring people, you know, and the Finns are the favorites, local favorites, so they really roar when those guys come in. And, and you shoot right in front of them, which, you know, I could do. I was a good good shooter, and I was good at concentrating. But the climb out of the stadium was alongside the outrun of a 90-meter ski jump. So for me, that was a big hill. And I remember mm-hmm. looking at that thing just feeling daunted by it, like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've mm-hmm. got to get up that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and later, you know, I taught myself this mental trick of of pre- pretending that nothing's a hill. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, you, know you get tired, more tired in some places than others, but I'd always just look at the road in front as if it were level and I was flying. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that skill in the, <laughs> when I was seventeen in, in Lati, Finland. 
but uh, but anyway, that was really my introduction to the big leagues, and and I learned a lot from it. I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I needed to be stronger mentally and physically both, and uh, you didn't have a particularly good performance. There. It was just okay, but it was my first time. The next year was uh, I was a freshman in college, and, and the world championships were in Russia. When it, Russia was the USSR, mm. and that was pretty cool to go back to go there then and see the inside the Iron Curtain and. Uh, be the uh, you know the American <laughs> the American team. How many people were on the American biathlon team? Uh, that went to you know, I was still a junior in in eighty two. What do you mean you were a junior? So was it like an the, age? Yeah, there's like a, yeah. So there, I think whether it was eighteen years old or something, you became a senior. Okay. And under that, you were a junior. I can't remember. Okay. But that was my last year as a as a junior on the junior national team. Okay. And then. So that was 82. 83 uh, was an odd year. We actually, there was a thing called the U- World University Games that we went to in Yugoslavia. No, in, um, it wasn't there. It was in Romania. No, Bulgaria. Okay. That's it. Okay. <laughs> One of those One countries. Of those countries. Bul- Bulgaria, but it was. It was Sofia, Bulgaria. It's the only time I've been there. So anyway, yeah, 83, we went to the World University Games. I was in college then. I was at Dartmouth College. And then in 84, the uh, Olympic trials came along, and nobody expected me to make it. You know, I was Why? 19 years old. and, and Just because, because were, you I didn't were... have the experience, and I hadn't really demonstrated that level of performance yet. I was, I had I'd, I'd had some breakthroughs that prior year at the World University Games, but I wasn't traveling with the senior team mm-hmm. doing the World Cup and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so until How many people year, were they going to select? For the Olympics? Yeah. Uh, and when I went, it was six. And, and so... Uh, six men and uh in fact there were the women didn't have an olympic uh biathlon team uh, or sport uh, event i guess i'll say mm-hmm. at, that, at that time later on they did but so it was just men that traveled around but anyway yeah so 84 i broke through you know i i uh had consistent solid performances in the trials and made the team fourth position out of the six but felt really solid in doing so and had some coaches that would help me get there that were really proud of me and it was a cool moment and then that year the olympics were in sarajevo yugoslavia and uh and i was you know and that was my first year touring the world cup circuit with the national team and i did really well for an american with the caveat that people always go oh did you did you win did you medal jeez we were you know, American college kids naturally aspirated. We weren't cheating. We weren't taking drugs and mm-hmm. blood doping and all this stuff that mm-hmm. all of our comp- competition was doing. Mm-hmm. It's like people get on Lance Armstrong for, you know, for having um, uh, done doping and whatever he did to win the seven Tour de France's that he did. Lance Armstrong was a great athlete and he won against people that were doing the exact same thing he did. Yeah. If he weren't doing what everybody else was doing, he wouldn't have won. Just that's that simple in sport, hmm. and so in my case, we didn't. You know, and 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 when I look back at it later, in fact, uh, we knew that the East Germans and the Russians, in particular, were were medically um, enhanced. enhanced. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so our edge against them was in shooting, and and uh, and we could still hang with them skiing, and occasionally, you know, when we were at a peak and they weren't, we could beat them, but we couldn't hang with them consistently because they were cheating. Um, and and then it turned out other people were too. The Italians had a had a you know program that you know we later found out about. But the West Germans it, were the big surprise. Eighty four Olympics. I remember a fellow named Peter Onger, you know, dominating the men's events and on the podium. You know, 
arms up, very dramatic, and getting his gold medal hung around his neck, you know. And and the year after that, uh, fellow on the West German team busted him. They told he 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 got insulted by something that I don't recall the exact circumstance, but he turned them all in for the cheating that they'd been doing. And so Ongerer and company, uh, they'd also won, I think, the gold and the relay events there. And some, a couple of the guys had some medals in one of the Olympics. They got all their medals taken away. Jeez. And so if you think about that, you know, for me, I was in the middle of the pack. I had the fourth best shooting in the 20K at the Sarajevo Olympics, which I, I'm proud of. Out of everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, I was yeah, like, you amazing. Know, I, I did great. Um, and a 19-year-old kid, and my coaches were proud of me, and I was proud of myself. <laughs> but I didn't win. I was, like I said, in the middle of the pack. But uh, I'd much rather live with that and then with later, you know, impact that I made on the sport than I than to have been one of those guys who, whether you're caught or not, had been artificially, sure, sure. you know, uh, boosted to, to win. Because you always know in your heart, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I, I'm much more comfortable with the, with the journey I took in, in the sport and, with, and in life itself, you know, because it was all, you know, based on integrity and effort. And, and, and you, the truth is also not winning, you know, failing when you're trying really hard. I won't say failing, but not winning, we'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gives you a healthy dose, dose of humility. Uh, and then later, you know, when I was one of the dominant guys on the team, going for the 88 Olympic team, uh, it was just this weird thing where occasionally you feel like the hand of God's behind you, you got a tailwind, and occasionally you feel like the hand of God's in front of you, and he's, he's check, put, checking you, checking your ego. And that's and what happened it, in 88? I think, yeah. It was just because this odd thing where um, – I was absolutely going to Calgary. I was one of the guys that was gunning for medals and, and, you know, on top of my game in the sport. Um, And I did a bunch of things. So one was I accepted a sponsorship from a new ski company because they had these really attractive kind of offer, and they offered me a dozen sets of their best skis. And and the company I'd been using was sort of more modest in their approach with me. And these guys were all like flash. Well, the flash turned into really slow skis. So I'm in the Olympic trials with these dog crap skis that were just, just you know, I'm, I'm just wailing along. And guys that I that never beat me could blow by me. And I was oh, like, man. oh, shit, this is bad. <laughs> and then um, just some other n- anomalies with uh, my coach one time did a weird thing where he, he kind of stepped in front of me and intruded on my getting to the firing line as I was coming to the range. Oh, and, yeah, just this, just this weird thing. He was a Nor- Norwegian guy that had a chip on his shoulder <laughs> at the moment for me and kind of kind of threw me off and in that one in that shooting uh, stage as well as two others during the trials i had what's called a split bullet where you basically hit the target but only half the bullet it's like right right, right in the edge if the if it's a micron one way or the other the target goes down or it doesn't and, and so i had three of those any one of which would have put me on the olympic team 15 oh, seconds in the ski race one one day of slightly better skis would have put sure, me on the olympic sure. team so so it was a out of four bust ass races 15 seconds was what it came down to and i didn't make the team and i was just absolutely devastated brokenhearted about it and uh and yet i look at it back at that now and i go you know I've had the most remarkable, blessed, and best life of anybody I've ever known. I mean, the crazy variety of, of mm-hmm. experience that I've had and, and the, you know, the tremendous victories I've had, you know, have been balanced by defeats and challenges and stupidity and whatever else. And so uh, I, I, I'm glad for that. You know, I really feel like I have, I'm a balanced human being that's had a balanced journey. And I've looked at guys that have 
consistent success in say a sport like that no matter no matter what unless you choose to exit on top and gracefully at some point if you stick with something like that somebody's going to be better than you they're going to beat you and so I've, I've watched a lot of guys you know have to come to terms with themselves at some point and so for me that was in you know going into the 88 winter that was where I was it really made me stop and reflect and it was one of the cool things that happened that in that moment was uh I was waiting in the hotel room for the results after the last race. I was like, I know it's close, and I thought I made it. Get a knock on my hotel room door, and the guy who I bumped off the 84 team comes in. His name's John Ruger, and he, he goes, oh, you didn't make it. And and then he sat down, and, and we cried together. He sat down, and he, he told me about how he felt when um, I'd bumped him off the 84 team and because he, he, didn't, he didn't see it coming. And, mm-hmm. and he, he was like devastated about it and he said you know i used to think of myself always as an olympian as a as a uh, biathlete you know and, and then he goes you know actually no i, I decided i'm john ruger and i do mm. biathlon and mm. i am you know i do the olympics mm-hmm. and and i thought that was really a healthy perspective and i've always appreciated that he you know transferred that thought to me at that time and that helped me kind of heal and then and then the winter in europe that year actually turned out to be fun because i i had joined the uh, military because somebody well, somewhere along the way through ski racing, uh, I'd been uh, have recruited, I'll say that, to, to join the U.S. military because they wanted me to, to be on the military biathlon team. So unbeknownst to most people, Crazy. the U.S. You know, Army, Air Force, whatever, through the National Guard has a, has a military sports team that they send to these events called SISM. So there's summer SISM games which sort of mirror the Olympic Games okay. and winter SISM games that mirror the but they're military, but yeah, for military. So you, so you end up, you know, you go to wherever the world championships are for the military world championships, and you're racing against many of the same people that you would be racing against if you went to the regular world championships. Because in, say, Germany, for example, at the time, uh, most of the German athletes were professionals through the military so they'd gotcha. be like they'd be like u.s or german customs you know, agents they yeah never, yeah, they yeah. never went to work <laughs> but but they but they were therefore able to train full-time with full-time coaching and so Gosh, they, you know, the europeans really took the sport seriously and yeah. all the russians were you know in the military and so as well the east germans and whatever they never did normal service they were athletes through the military but that allowed them to be professional and so in our case you know i was i that winter i got to race against many of the same people I would have otherwise and uh but it was kind of cool I knew it was my last year in the sport and I and I was healing myself from having not made the Olympic team and uh then I just went to Europe with a great attitude and I just had so much fun I was in great shape and I, and I raced really well and uh uh, lived on French fries and beers and chased women, and it was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this whole thing, when did when did you have this um, sort of brain spasm that was my gun oh. is not good enough? Yep, my so, gun's gonna break. Right. I need to change. Right, it. that came out of the winter of '85. I uh, I was at the national championships in uh, the U.S. and was anyone innovating the stocks at that no, point? No, 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 no. We were we were all using these standard target rifles that were made by a great German rifle manufacturer, Anschutz. But they never put in any effort into the stocks for two reasons. The first is that. I don't know. Well, Germans just tend to take the thing that comes from the factory. The factory didn't care if you broke a rifle stock there. You can buy another one. <laughs> if you're an American college kid, you know, another $500 for another rifle stock is you didn't have $500. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, 
I'd be, you know, gluing and pinning things back together after they broke because the they were made of a solid piece of wood and the rifles were very heavy because they were just a conventional target rifle, intentionally heavy because they thought you had to have a heavy rifle to shoot accurately when your pulse is racing and you've been ski racing. And uh, and so, and they had a, a short grain across the pistol grip. So you could just bonk it on a table and thing would break in half. Oh, okay, so okay, so okay, you're okay. carrying it a ski race and you fall over or you have a wreck, you know, was, the skis were getting faster and the courses weren't necessarily getting better. And so no matter how good of a skier you were once in a while, you'd, you'd, that you'd was the, it up. That was the soft point in the, yeah. in the stock. So you know. you'd stand up and your rifle's hanging in two pieces and your race is over. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that happened to me and it had happened before, but in the national championship championships that year, I was like, shoot. Well, Dartmouth had a really good student workshop where you could go in and build things and so guys were building canoes and furniture and i'd gone in there as a freshman or a sophomore and just been intrigued by what i saw and i was like well i'm a long way from idaho and i i saw these uh molds on the wall for making uh, guitars and uh i was like i always wanted to learn how to play guitar maybe i could make a guitar so i walk in i asked and and they said oh yeah go talk to ralph rogers so so i walk up to this old white-haired you know worn down man of a vermonter named ralph and yeah, he said, well, Mr. Rogers, I hear you might be able to help me make a guitar. And he goes, oh, you want to make a guitar, do you? <laughs> and, 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 and he goes, oh, I'll teach you how to make a guitar. So I spent two years with Ralph making a classical guitar, and uh, and he wouldn't let me use a power tool if a hand tool could be could do the job. And so, you know, scraping and sanding and mm-hmm. planing and, and, uh, and, and all different kinds of wood species went into this thing. And I made a beautiful guitar. I mean, it's a beautiful guitar. And uh, you still have it today? Yeah, I still have it. Oh, and, cool! And, but that was where I learned craftsmanship and woodworking, and uh, and also gained a lot of confidence in my ability to just do something, you know, from nothing, from raw materials. Um, and so, and after the winter of '85, I had this rifle stock I'd glued together one too many times, and thought I could go make a better one. And I went down to the wood shop with it and talked to the, you know teachers there the guy the guys that were helping you know figure things out and i had another great mentor there this fellow named peter roby who uh ran the shops at the time and he just took interest in me and he, he just as he as i talked to him about this he got this spark in his eye and uh and started asking questions about you know the best materials for it to make it so it couldn't break and and then you know without really uh coming from myself looking at the at the at the thing i thought you know i think i can make it lighter if mm-hmm. i make it lighter i can ski faster mm-hmm. you know so it would have an edge because we were looking americans look for an edge right and there was <laughs> no there were no regulations to what the stock nope, could right. be nope nobody thought of it okay. I mean, we were all using these 11 and a half pound rifles mm-hmm. roughly you know, depending on, on on what you know variety you had but they were all 10 11 12 pounds um, well, 10, 11, 12 pounds on your back when you're ski racing is a lot of weight over time. And uh, and so as I worked through the spring of 85 on, on what became the Everly stock, um, first of all, I explored materials and found, you know, carbon fiber was a new material then. It wasn't used in sport too much. It was coming into skis a little bit. I think I had my first carbon fiber-based skis, and I did, and when I think back about it, in 1984 at the Olympics, I had a special pair of skis that said test on it from the mm-hmm. Folk, German Folkel factory. Uh, and then, uh, so the following year, I thought of using carbon fiber to make a wood stock stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, then found that this material called Sitka spruce, that comes from the northwest coast of America and up into Alaska and Canada, Canada, Alaska, uh, 
had the same modulus as carbon fiber and the two put together in the lamination i mean nasa was using materials like that for wind tunnel turbine blades and wow. uh, their sailboats were using sitka spruce and carbon fiber to make strong spars and stuff like mm. that for racing and and so you know i didn't invent the combination of those two, two materials but i applied them to a rifle stock for the first time and then i started looking at ways you know for, for, i thought about the ergonomics of the thing we were using and the, you know the way it fit your body and i thought i think i can you know improve that and did they have like, thumb holes at that stage no yeah and, and, and there wouldn't really be reason for that i mean you, you uh you know if you if you think about it just the way that your hands work on a rifle and the way that the actions work thumb holes really were a good thing i made some variations on that gotcha. later but at the time a, a kind of the over wrap thing was, mm-hmm. was better uh so anyway the yeah that spring i i, I started with uh the idea pitched it to the U.S. Olympic Committee's Sports Equipment and Technology Committee, which didn't give grants to athletes, but they gave grants to people who wanted to make a better, like a race car manufacturer that wanted to make a better bobsled. Those guys got money from the U.S. Olympic Committee. And, but anyway, the, I, I told them what I was doing and wrote them a proposal, and they gave me a grant, which, you know, for me was a ton of money, like $5,000 sure. $5, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I, uh, I I used that money to develop the stock, and then I made stocks for the whole U.S. team uh, as part of that project. And so the following year, we went to uh, the World Championships in Norway with these radically different rifles than anybody else had. And our results were radically different than and it what ever were been. The, what, what, what was the skinny? There must have been so much just like hubbub about... Look at these crazy stocks. Oh yeah, I mean, just it blew up. It was one of those those moments in you know when when everybody else goes, holy shit, look what the Americans have, you know, and and they were alarmed because our results were so much better. I mean, we were suddenly competitive with the cheating bastards, and so, <laughs> um, and they were they were offended that we were competitive with them. Jeez. Like I had a, I had a German stomp my poles off my off my hands in a in a race in uh, Germany because he was offended that I was in front of him and uh, in, a, in a relay race. And I, afterwards I was like, I was so pissed off, you know, and, and he came up, you know, kind of, you know, apologized after the race. I'm like, well, you know, want to kill him. Anyway, uh, the spring of 86, we'd showed up to, to Oslo with these, to the world championships with these cool lightweight. I took four pounds off the gun. So mm. we went from 11 and a half pounds to seven and a half pounds and we were all excited, all knew we were skiing faster. The rifles shot better because they fit us better, and the mm-hmm. balance, the weight was now forward, so mm-hmm. that the moment of inertia was kind of more, the rifle was more stable as you're vibrating in there. And so uh, uh, so our results were, were suddenly quite good, and that was really the point from then forward where the American team broke through. You know, we psychologically broke through. We expected to be in the top now. Um, over, well, and, and one of the funny things that happened that year, too, was, like I say, the the Europeans were pissed, and they wrote a rule. They got the technical committee to write a rule after the World Championships that said you can't have rifle stocks with holes in them, and because mine were all skeletonized, and we're like, you can't write a rule that says we can't have what we already have. Mm. So we fought back and forth with them, and eventually. They said, okay, what does that thing weigh? We said seven and a half pounds, you know, which is 3.3 3 kilos. And they said, okay, that, you know, then that became the floor Standard. weight. For the, yeah, so now there is a rule that says you can't have a rifle lighter than seven and a half pounds. 
and and uh, for a, lot, a long time that was called the Eberly Rule. <laughs> really? I don't, yeah, I don't know that it is anymore. <laughs> you know, it's people have forgotten. You know, that's it was that was 1986, so it was a long time ago. But uh, I can look now at the fact that I really impacted that sport. It was a cool thing. I mean, I, I showed people first of all that you could shoot accurately with a lighter rifle. Mm-hmm. People hadn't considered that. Obviously, then, then you know, demonstrably faster ski racing times because you're carrying four pounds less weight on your back. And that's just that, that weird. It's like a heavy pair of boots matters, you know, that extra yep, few. Yep. But there's something Over about time. It. Yeah. And and uh, four pounds is a ton mm-hmm. if it's on your back and you're, and you're hammering. So, yeah. So that was... Did all the, the other teams start adopting yeah, that so same I had, style? Uh, yeah. After, you know, some, somewhere after that, I was... I went into business, you know. I, I used to... I don't remember what I first charged for the things, but I started selling them. That was the Everly Stock Company started. And it was, and you had patented and everything. No, 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 no. I wasn't. I was. I thought about it, but you know, that was where I first learned about patents. And then, you know, the truth is the. biathlon rifle market's pretty small <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah which which interestingly um you know i was super excited about what i'd done i felt like i'd made a difference you know sure. I, i'd shifted something i yeah. shifted the way you know i changed the way the that olympic sport was was you know approached mm. uh, and, and that carried forward now to it being a much more dynamic sport it used to be a little more plodding and you know more methodical and now it's like high speed and you know wired and uh and i yeah, this because you know people realized oh you know this this kind of shit did you happened. sell any stocks to c- the competitors yeah yeah you know i i don't, I don't think i ever sold them to a russian but <laughs> <laughs> a couple of germans used them you know they they, they they were funny they were so condescending you know most of them were like oh that looks very american and i was like damn right it does <laughs> but uh anyway yeah I, several brits brits bought them from me and i you know sold them to tons of americans or lots of americans that used them and then eventually um other people started copying them <laughs> one of the funniest things is later after i you know i'd gone and done a bunch of other things i came back uh well i'll i'll, I'll say it this way so i was trying to think i was in college at the time and i was trying to think about how to translate this thing i'd done into a business that was went beyond biathlon mm-hmm. and i'd had people asking me to make hunting rifle stocks for them like these things so they want a lighter lighter weight stronger hunting rifle stock and one that fit them better and i thought eh, you know it's a totally different stock but you know maybe sometime so in the spring of 87 my final year at dartmouth i uh i uh took an industrial design course and as my final project in that, in the Dartmouth College student workshops, I had Remington send me over a couple of their mountain rifles and, you know, tossed their stocks off and made a couple of my first skeletonized carbon fiber wood rifle stocks, you know, for hunting. Wow. And they were really cool. I still have those things, and they were just really different. In fact, I'm, I think I might, I'll have to show you, I think I might have a variation of them, one of them here in the in the safe. But uh, anyway, uh Made a bunch of those through the years, not tons, but enough to think of it, you know, potentially as a business. And I knew that I, if I ever developed that thing, I had something that people would want. Mm-hmm. Because when, when people saw them and when they shoot them, they're like, they just shoot nice. You know, like, mm-hmm. the, I hate to say it, but the rifle I was shooting this morning, I, I just couldn't get my hand on it right. There's mm-hmm. something about the way it fits. Mm-hmm. You know, it's conceived as a, by everybody else as a nice rifle stock, but my hand goes on. I'm like, it just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So I, I probably I need to modify that but anyway uh, so that in 1987 i started making hunting rifle stocks and i started thinking beyond that well what else could you do i had my ski coach at dartmouth had been a 
hunter from Alaska and a biathlete and knew what I'd done in biathlon. And he looked at me one day and he said, you know, you ought to make a backpack that'll carry a gun because guys in Alaska would really like something like that, you know? And I, and, and so I thought that's a good idea. And I did, I was in this sort of huge creative thing doing this industrial design course. I drew my first pack in that 1987 oh, man. and, uh, and, and had this idea in my mind's eye of a company that should exist someday, you know, the North face for the gun industry, mm-hmm. for, the, for the shooting sports, for mm. hunting. And, uh, and, yeah, so that idea started in 87, and every year since then, I had something on the books, is, you know, for the Eberly Stock Company. I made some rifle stocks here and there, and even when I joined the Air Force in 86, and then later went to a flight school and pilot training in the Air Force, uh, I, I was, oh, I'd go to the base workshop and make rifle stocks because somebody had ordered a few of them from me, and so yeah, I did yeah. that all the way through you know, so each year. Even in Turkey, I remember working on rifle stocks when I was deployed over there. <laughs> kind of funny, but uh, and the Eberly stock and and what's translated all the way through from the beginning are the three circles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was when I when I made that first skeletonized stock, I you know had kind of a, th- a thick element, the vertical section on the butt for the skeleton, and I thought, well, I can make that into a truss if I drill three holes in it or some holes in it. So I picked a size bit and I drilled you know drill three holes in it, and and that. You know, for me, I was like, I like that. You know, that's kind of my my lucky mark. And mm-hmm. so that I never really told anybody about that in the in the biathlon rifle. But I started. I I think I'd always had this sense of being lucky, and 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 my mom used to laugh, and we used the word serendipity. You know, but I was like, I had two things. One is that I felt like I, I I had a serendipitous life, and so did she. She'd look at me and she'd just laugh and smile and go. And, Mr. Serendipity, you know, and mm-hmm. talk, talk about how cool things were for me. And uh, but at the same time, uh, during my teenage years, I read a lot. You know, I, I kind of kind of delved pretty deep into philosophy and and thought a lot about life and the world and how and my place in it. And uh, and I realized that you could look for good in anything, or you can look for bad in anything. And uh, and I chose to look for good. So no matter what shit happened, I always found that there was either a lesson in it that was good for me, or it would make me smarter or better, or make me think better next time, or you just you just find that that little bit of sunshine and whatever it is, and so that became a you know lifeblood philosophy for me for, for me, but also you know then translated into the appreciation of of uh, success and you know the blessings I had, and 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 then also just a sense of how freaking lucky I am to be mm-hmm. an American where I am in life and to have gone through what I had. Even even by my mid-20s, I felt like I was a really lucky guy, mm-hmm. you know. And then the Air Force taught me how to fly fighter planes, and heck, hard to be hard to feel luckier than that. <laughs> did you do any combat? <laughs> yeah, I in did. That, yeah. In that space? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So when I first, I, I joined the uh, Idaho Air Guard, and, uh, and they sent you to Air Force Flight School. It was a great deal. It, people, a lot of people don't know about it, but... You know, the National Guard in the, in the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan did a lot. I mean, a lot of Guard units are, were front-line units. Um, and it turned out mine was one of the first Air Force units to become a front-line unit. Mm-hmm. So when I got into the Guard, we were flying F-4 Phantoms, the coolest jet. And one of the fastest versions of it ever was the, the, the reconnaissance version, the RF-4. So I had this fighter plane with cameras and all slick. And it was just made to go smoke and fast. And yeah. so... 
you know, one of the true Mach 2 airplanes. Jeez. And, and uh, one of the last true Mach 2 airplanes. And uh, and so we had those, which was fun. It was a beautiful airplane to learn to fly, just the coolest flying, fastest, just smoothest flying thing. But also just badass. Mm-hmm. You know, when you started that thing up, the you, the noise in the cockpit and the rumble of the engines, and the it was just special. Mm-hmm. Hard to describe. But every, everybody who ever flew it just looks at each other like, oh, man, that was the that was the Fully thing. weaponized? Did it have well, weapon the, capabilities? The, the recce version had air-to-air missiles. And okay. so we'd, we'd practiced a lot of air-to-air combat, which was really fun. I mean, that's where you really learn, learn how to fly an airplane right. to its maximum performance. And, yep. and we'd intentionally depart controlled flight and make the thing go a different direction. And, and, and you know, flying against fly-by-wire airplanes like F-18s and F-16s and F-15s uh, in, in, in simulated air-to-air combat we could do things with an F4 that they couldn't do. They could do a lot of things that we couldn't do because they could turn faster and tighter yep. and sustain yep. a turn where the F4 would lose speed. But we could, you know, point the nose up, stall it basically, and kick the rudders and make it go in a completely different direction than what they were expecting. And, and, you know, and so we were pretty effective fighting our way against them, and, and we got really good at air-to-air combat. And then uh, in the early 90s, uh, we were transferred from that to the uh, a version called the wild weasel the f4g wild weasel and that was fully armed so that one was made oh, to that's take out the gun had wild weasel on yeah, the yeah, side of it yeah, yeah 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 so the seekins guys made me a rifle they found out what my old tail number was in my most special airplane and uh and my call sign and all that and Made me a gun modeled after that with it says wild weasel on it because the, the weasel mission was fun it was cool we when we signed up for it, we're like, holy shit, we're getting the weasels. And then a lot of the guys in the Air Force didn't want us to have it because it was a tier one, you know, asset. It was the, you know, the first airplane over the wire into Iraq mm-hmm. all the way through mm-hmm. uh, was a weasel because you go in and, and suppress the enemy radar sites, so surface-to-air missile sites. If they so you're dropping surface-to-air missiles? We're dropping air-to-surface missiles. Air-to-surface, sorry. Yeah, air-to-surface. Yeah, that... Uh, that knock home, out home their radar on the radars and and, right. and and kill the radar sites yeah that so it was a cool mission you know it was really fun to learn and fun to apply and um you know we were flying a little bit more capable air version of the f4 than the rf4 had been in terms of air-to-air combat and so and we had really cool uh avionics and the, the f4g advanced wild weasel had some amazing uh sensors in it so we could we knew where people were in the sky we had better mm-hmm. situational awareness than most people did and so and we could play dirty you know because of that so we'd uh we'd know if we were going against uh, f-15s or f-16s that were armed with amrams these advanced medium range air to air missiles that came along later mm-hmm. in the game we didn't have those but we knew what their tactics were with them and so we would um disappear from their radars which we because we could go exactly 90 degrees to a doppler radar in the f-4 and and one of us would climb 10,000 feet the other one would dive 10,000 feet so we go to dis- different places in the sky 90 degrees to the oncoming fighters and you're 90 degrees for a period of time where you know there have missiles in the air that are no longer guided at you the fighters are coming at you you're no longer on the radar so they're looking for you visually and then we you know come out of different parts of the sky and try to get in behind them and often would you know with them flying by blind to us Jeez. we'd roll in behind them and you know Called the called the hits on them and piss them off, <laughs> so it was fun to you know to do that against American fighter planes or wherever we were flying. Sometimes against foreign you know friendly forces too. But it, that was just a you know great mission for a young man and really mm-hmm. fun. And so to answer your earlier question, we we uh, 
went either into Saudi Arabia or Turkey and flew into Iraq, you know, for a lot of Saddam Hussein's tenure in the early 90s. And, you know, one night I got to shoot a missile at, at a SAM site in there. You know, we didn't have many opportunities because the Iraqis by that time had learned that when the weas- weasels are airborne, they didn't turn their radars on. <laughs> <laughs> but I have one night when uh, and they, uh, they were shooting at an F-15 and, you know, I, I saw it and I saw the radar and we, and we smoked a missile off at it. So it was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. But uh, then later uh, we went to the A-10, which was a great mission. I was the lead pilot for the instructors uh, to, or one of the lead pilots, a few of us went to bring the, the, I flew the first A-10 into the Boise Guard. And those guys are still flying A-10s and have been to war a whole bunch since I left. They've, they went to all the wars and have done some pretty cool things with those airplanes. So anyway, that was a good chapter of life too. Yeah, for sure. But Eberly stock kept going the entire time. Yeah, well, I was, like I said, I was making rifle stocks. It would, but then it wasn't Eberly stock. It was the Eberly stock company. And then uh, in 2000, I, I got out of the military. I was like, you know, I just I just had too much in my head. And I and I at, at some point in, in there, I decided to become an airline pilot because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I had the background, just, had all the experience, yeah, and I and I knew that I'd have more time to do other things. You know, I just the the problem with being a fighter pilot, especially as I was, I was full time instructor pilot. Um, and it consumed at least six days a week. You know, often I'd go to work before it got light and leave after it got dark. Mm. And I had guys tell me, oh, you'll be the general here someday. And I was like, okay, but I, I noticed the general's cars in the parking lot even more than mine is. <laughs> you know? Jeez, yeah. You know, if I'd have done that, if I was the general, I'd be about now, I'd be thinking about retiring and, and I would have done nothing else in my life or very little else. And I didn't, you know, I've always sought balance and, and, and broad experience. And so I, there was something about that where I felt like as much as I loved, you know, walking around a fighter plane and touching the touching the tail, you know, it was just something about it. I was like, yeah, it's time for me to move on. So I went, went to work for United Airlines and, uh, and, uh, in 1997. Stayed on as a part-timer in the Guard, flying fighters still until 2000. And then in 2000, I was like, okay, I can't do both. It's too much. And so yeah. I decided to hang up my spurs as a fighter pilot and become an airline pilot solely. And had this company in my head. And I was kind of toying with it in 2000. Um, then, September 11th, 2001, hmm. I was a junior captain at United Airlines. And our airline was one of the ones that got hit that day and mm-hmm. just changed my life. In the moment, I was like, oh, shit. This company could be gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I was pissed off you know i was just so mad i was so i have a real visual mind and i thought about what happened in those airplanes and i thought about the guys i knew in the san francisco plane that came out of boston and was just pissed you know and uh and so uh that day did two things the first is i wrote a letter back to my guard you do going i know you guys are going to war i wrote to the commanding general at the time i said i know you guys are going to war and i want to come i want to i want to go kill the fuckers that did this mm-hmm. um and thought about the letter didn't send it i also thought about the fact that this job i had uh and the company i worked for could be gone in short order mm-hmm. and i and i had this thing inside of me that was eberly stock i didn't i didn't have that name yet but i i that that north face with guns vision was really sure, present sure. and i just was like you know what i'm gonna do that i'm gonna I'm going to start the company. Because in the 90s, I, so long before I made my first, after I told you I sketched my first pack in 1990, mm-hmm. 
well, by the early 90s, I'd made versions of it and, you know, showed you the prototype. Sure, I have sure. For, you know, sort of cobbled together pieces of stuff that did the same thing that some of our packs do now. And I knew I had a better mousetrap for hunting than anybody had ever made. And so September 11, 2001, I sat down and started, you know, sketching it out and thinking about how to make my concept into a commercial project. And I'd, I'd been going to the sporting goods stores, like Sportsman's Warehouse was in, was in business by then, and they had 14 stores by 2003 when I first did business with them, but now they've gotten bigger then. I'd go to their store and I'd look in the hunting pack aisle and it was like, ah, there's still nobody doing it. There's all the hunting packs at that time were just basically like hiking packs with yep. camouflage, maybe yep. <laughs> black straps and black buckles and just, they look like crap. Um, and, uh, and so I was like, oh, there's still nobody, still nobody's made a good mouse trap. So I started working on that in 2001. It took till 2003 until I had my first, um, you know, commercial product and, uh, and that, Somewhere prior to that, I was thinking about, you know, I, I was aware of branding. I, I talk about the North Face frequently because what had happened was, you know, that company started in the 60s. Well, in the early 70s, I was a Little League baseball player. And shortly after that, the guy who'd been my coach as a Little League player became employed by the North Face and eventually became the president of the North Face. And so um, they were sort of always my model you know mm-hmm. back then they were you know they weren't a macy's company they were a everest company yeah, I just yeah. thought they were cool and i was like that's the i want to build a company like that, that you know that, that makes stuff for the people that carry guns and and so in 2001 and two i was that was my target i was like okay i'm gonna make a you know broad-based uh company that that you know these pack ideas i have these rifle stock ideas i have i'm like i'm gonna do it all and so I actually, my first products were rifle stocks. In my first time in the SHOT Show, I had rifle stocks that were really unique, modular, interesting stocks, um, and packs that had rifle scabbards and expandable features that mm-hmm. nobody had ever done. And, sure. And, uh, and it was pretty interesting. I, I uh, And it was Eberly stock then? Yeah. So after that September 11th moment, I, as I was thinking about... Uh, what to name a yeah you know, how to build a brand and what to name it you know uniqueness was important but also so wanted something that evoked performance it's pretty funny uh i explored all kinds of you know just brainstorm and so you, you brainstorm and you just let your brain flow and you write down names and think and so one of the names that i had gone by was the word tenzing and oh you know, really yeah, yep yep because tenzing norgay yeah you know? tenzing so, norgay. so so it's funny later Jay Robert, who now works for me at Everly Stock, um, had owned a company called Black's Creek Guide Gear. Jay Robert, who now works for me at Everly Stock, was the first guy I ever sold an Everly Stock backpack to because he owned a retail store in Napa. I didn't know he had a pack company. I go out there thinking, I'm going to try to sell this guy these, pitch these guys this pack. Mm-hmm. He thought I was trying to pitch him a pack to sell him Black's Creek Guide Gear. And uh, so he and I got to know each other then. We laughed about it, and, we, and he agreed to put some in his retail store when they came in. And... Uh, uh, and he was, I remember him saying, well, the only problem with that name is nobody's going to know how to know how to say it. Cause you know, I, I, uh, by then thought that the best pairing or the, or, or, or I realized I had a unique experience and a unique sure. history and I yeah. thought, you know, I might as well keep that and try to tell that story as this goes forward. And so, uh, you know, it made, it just occurred to me that if I put Everly in stock together to make Everly stock, First of all, it's the only thing that Google Googled. It was a unique name, and uh, and I could tell the story from it. And so that's where that started. So fast forward now, Jay had, had Black's Creek Guide Gear, and I don't know, early 2011, 12, whatever that was. Um, he 
gone into business with, with Plano Holdings out of Illinois. And they created and, uh, the Tenzing, and they right? created Tenzing. And he took me to lunch. He's like, oh, I'm just, I, I got them doing this thing I'm going to tell you about. So he took me to, takes me to lunch with a Plano credit card. And he said, he's, we were talking over lunch. He said, yeah, we're starting a new pack company. It's called Tenzing. And I just laughed. I'm like, hey, you want a logo for it? Because I've got one. <laughs> and, yeah, and, anyway, it's been, it's, it's been a fun relationship to have him as a competitor and a friend first. And then uh, this past year, serendipitously he uh decided he wanted to get back in the business and wanted to work for me and he's he laughed he's like you know together we're going to be a lot better and i'm like okay good Mm -hmm. because the truth is for me i'm you know i'm done designing packs i I love doing it and i love poking at it and and guiding guys but really for me it's more fun now to look at things and ask questions that make the thing better to spur the designer of it to to think a little deeper about it or differently or to, or to, or to look for motifs that evoke our brand. And, and so now we're at a place where um, Jay is actually leading our design team and I'm not. And, yeah. Uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we have um, we certainly enjoyed our time here with the old Blood Origins episode. Did you have any – I'd like to ask this question. You know, I'm obviously deeply embedded in Blood Origins because I run it. I'm always curious to know people's like – mental state or like coming in here you're like okay i know i'm coming in here to do a blood origins episode with robbie yeah well um i'll be honest robbie i i'm I'm honored that you asked when you did i was like oh gosh that's nice (laughs) um i never really think about myself as um the choice for things like that i don't know why i just live my own space and my Mm -hmm. own brain and my own way and and particularly if I, wherever I am, I tend to, I tend to just kind of, but I, but I see guys like you come along. I'm like, yeah, we should talk sometime. <laughs> so it's, so I was honored that you, um, you know, made the effort to invite me to participate and, and I, I am honored to have done so. And, and then as far as my state of mind coming into it, I can just say that the truth is beyond that. I hadn't given a lot of thought. I, I've been pretty busy with life itself. And so as I, uh, uh, yeah, as this came up, I was like, oh, okay, time to go. You know, you know, got my airplane together so we could fly out here you know, right. the day before you guys arrived. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so it's just sort of this flood of experience, I guess, is, is what it is. Normally, you know, it's funny, and I, I, I actually didn't do it because I knew, given obviously everything that's happened the last six months with you and cancer and beating cancer and yeah, just a lot. A lot, yeah. I didn't need... Normally, what I typically do with people is I will plant seeds yeah. for about six weeks prior to us doing what we do here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll just send emails every so often, just say, hey, just checking in. And it'll be logistic. And I said, well, have you thought about, like, why do you hunt? Yeah. Or have you thought, like, why you believe in this or why you believe in that? And it may not be anything that they chew on, but I planted something that they may think a little bit about. Think yeah, a little yeah bit about. he's going to ask me questions. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, and and, yeah. as, and so what I've done is just sort of very un- subconsciously, and and typically what I do is I never even, all the questions that I ask in an email, people will think, oh, okay, those are the questions he's going to ask me, so I'm going to be ready with my answer. I never answer it. I don't ask any of those questions yeah, yeah, yeah. in the interview process. Yeah. But knowing that you were, you were already in that, like, you were in that space. Reflective. I've been reflective. Let's just say, say that over the last uh, six, eight months. That's for Correct. Sure. Yeah. And that I didn't feel like I needed to uh, yeah. stoke the fire. No. 
yeah but it's good that you know they ask the right questions and the right things start to come out and it's been a good good uh set of conversations for sure yeah well, I've, I've really appreciated it and uh it's going to turn out really really beautifully yeah and I know it's tough. Like, it's tough that we're talking about you and you're having to talk about you. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's my normal thing. Exactly. But, you know, it, but I, uh, it's interesting. Um, along the way, I've, I've, like I was talking to Jack Carr one time. He had me on his podcast. And he goes, man, you should write, I tell him stories. And he goes, you should write a book. And I was like, yeah, I should write a book. I've got, I've got a life story that's, you know, especially now, mm-hmm. let me talk about a wild ride mm-hmm. all the way you know from everything uh you know and if we haven't spoken on this you just mentioned the word cancer i mean so yeah i, I was told in december seven months ago that i was gonna die soon yep. and uh stage four yeah. prostate cancer right yep and it was mistakes ties everywhere. Yeah, I, I walked into the radiologist's office, and he's looking at me funny. And he, he's looking, you know, he, he goes, you know, this is really an unusual case. And I was like, why is that? And he goes, well, normally we don't have a guy like you in your state of fitness walk in here this full of cancer. And he said it's really rare for it to be in your brain, and because it was. And Jeez. and uh, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> good to know <laughs> but what do we do about it yeah so anyway um i i did a lot about it you know i learned a lot about how to fight cancer and 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 one of the best uh you know i think things about that was to eliminate that word i just said fight mm-hmm. you know because uh what have one, you been one saying of, one not of, just uh, treat right no no not that at all it's it's healing you know your mm. cancer is your body gone awry mm-hmm. they're your cells that have that have um uh become corrupted and mm-hmm. and uh uh you know gone in a, d- a different direction than they naturally should and your body's immune system isn't fighting it the way that it should and so something's out of balance something caused it to happen um whether it's uh you know the, the wild thing I've, I've learned is a, a, a bunch of things one is first of all healing is the focus not fighting so you right. so healing yourself means finding out what's wrong you know thinking about what the source might have been uh in my case business never stressed me much i i this has been a serendipitous journey but i you know i had personal relationships that stressed me a lot mm. and i think that's really where you know this, that, that internal war that i had um because i part of my life on the personal side wasn't what i had always dreamed it should have been yeah and, yeah. and so uh, you know that caused an awful lot of stress through the years, and uh, and I think that's probably where it started. But then, secondly, um, I've I've always been pretty nutritionally on. I mean, I've I've taken taken good care of myself, but you know, as you get older, things get out of balance, and I think the stress, because you know, again, I've learned a lot about it. So let's say acknowledge the fact that our emotions can drive physical changes in our body. You know, you you get excited and something happens with adrenaline and things and you get right. you, you fight or flight and things happen. You know, different different things mm-hmm. get triggered and and you know, you get tensed up or you get relaxed or all these things that happen from your emotional state and your mental state. And so if you think about sources of sickness, um, you know, being unwell can start there. Right. You can start with sort of I talked to one uh, well, I, I don't want to go too much into talking about, you know, 
my my marriage but it was just tough let's just, let's just say that but uh that till death do us part you know word i think is what kept me there <laughs> so i was sure. talking to one person and she goes yeah so you decided to kill yourself <laughs> i was like well i hadn't thought about it that way but now that you mentioned it <laughs> it's, it's interesting you know and 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 so then you know now i can say all of that's gone i i am healed emotionally mm-hmm. i'm in a good place i'm happy healed uh, cancer wise healed cancer wise and, yep. and 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 looking forward to life without all of that you know without the burdens that i formerly had and without uh, and and uh, and now you know between cancer and the treatment of it through chemotherapy and all that i am out of balance i mean i have i have you know my immune system isn't isn't functioning as well as it should and i have micronutrient micronutrient and gut biome imbalances that mm-hmm. you know that now i'm aware of and we're trying to fix mm-hmm. um which you know i can consolidate into a couple things one is we spoke yesterday about the weird fact that I'm alive at all. You know, through one thing or another, there right. been a million Serendipity. places where I could have killed myself or should have killed myself. Yeah, 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 for sure. But also more than that, I feel I do feel that God's kept me alive for various reasons, and I yep. feel like there's still more to my story in front. There's there's some purpose, whether it's teaching and helping and coaching, or I think a lot of it right now is just encouraging people that become sick. To think of it differently, don't you know? Don't listen to a doctor that tells you that tells you you're going to die. You go, you stop, and you go. Well, no, wait. What, what's wrong? How did this start? And how do I fix it? How do I heal myself? Right, right. Because because you can affect a lot of things with your mind, and your focus, and your faith. And and then uh, secondly, as we get older, um, you know, we tend to neglect things. I was in really good shape, but <laughs> one of the one of the healing tools that I discovered was a. Uh, clinic in Arizona that focuses on, first of all, a full scientific study of your body. So you find the places where your gut biome screwed up or mm-hmm. your micronutrients are inside and out or outside of the cells are not, not what they should be because we're all different. Each one of us, you know, um, has different capacities to to metabolize certain nutrients and, and yeah. we're, we're, you know many most of us have some you know holes in the thing that the human body adjusts to. Okay. As you get older, uh, you know those imbalances can start to play an effect in your body. Certainly if they're combined with, you know, the, the, the forces that cause us to be stressed or whatever, mm-hmm. that, that it will eventually lead to sickness. The other thing, though, is if you're in shape or not, if you don't, like, actively try to push the, the envelope to, you know, the, the places where it's uncomfortable, whether for me now it's stretching or, mm-hmm. you know, lifting things vertically over my head. <laughs> First time I had to do that, I was like, shoot, I, I, now I know I couldn't have done that a year ago either, but after chemo, you know, I could barely lift anything above my head. And, and so... Getting myself back in shape has been really fun, really mm-hmm. cool. And it's also one of the things that makes you realize, cancer or not, I was on a tra- trajectory towards less mobility. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now I'm choosing not to be. I'm choosing toward a trajectory toward, mm-hmm. you know, being active and vital yeah. for as far into old age as I can make it. 100%. You know, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool story, Glenn. And that's why we're here. Yeah. And uh, honored, humbled, grateful... I know this is just the beginning of uh, a, a deeper relationship, I hope. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just super grateful for your hospitality <laughs> and allowing me to, you know, I know you're not the, you don't enjoy a camera being stuck in your face and you have been very accommodating with, yeah. what at one time, four cameras in your face. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, but it's good. You guys are it's a good team, best best guys and good company. And, and and I learned last year with Jack Bottoms and Slots Media in Alaska to tolerate the camera. In my yes, sir. So yes, sir. It's all good. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Robbie. 
Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.